Welcome to, or welcome back to, the Journey Through Life podcast. I'm Justin Barton, the host of this podcast, and I'm super excited to be able to have this next episode released today. Um, It's a conversation with David Bush. Now, Dave is a guy that I observed starting about a year ago. He became a missionary with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and was called to serve in the Spokane area. I never knew him before, but I saw him around and thought, well, that guy's pretty interesting. And then I had the opportunity to get to know him just a little bit better through a class that we have been taking together for the last little while. And I thought it would be really interesting to have him sit down and just kind of share his life story and some of the things that are most important with him. Now, in this episode, um, as he is a current serving missionary with the church, this one does go quite a bit more into the religious side of things. But there are some fantastic takeaways, no matter what your religious belief or non-belief is, no matter what um, um, religion you belong to or don't belong to, there are some fantastic lessons in this conversation with Dave Bush. I am entitling this conversation, It's Not About You. And I think as you listen throughout this episode, you will hear him say that a couple of times. But you'll also hear it in his experiences that it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about what we can do with what we have been blessed with. Now, before I get started on um, this episode and this conversation with Dave, I just want to let you know how excited I am with the relationship that we have formed with a great company that fits perfectly with the theme of the Journey Through Life podcast. A Life Untold is a company that helps absolutely anyone turn their life story into a beautifully designed hardcover book. Their process is designed to be super easy for everyone. And a couple of episodes ago, you heard a conversation that I had with my mom. She's currently going through this process. And my mom is a very smart woman, but she is not techie at all. And if she can go through and do this um, process online, just about anybody can. Um, So you do an online interview with thought-provoking questions about your life, or you can actually have a one of their biographers do a live interview with you over the phone. After the interview is complete, A Life Untold takes over and designs, prints, and delivers your life story as a hardcover book to your door. This makes for a great gift to a loved one in your life, or will be a great project to do on your own. Either way, this life story, bound in a printed book, is something that your family will treasure for generations. Now, I'm grateful to announce that listeners to the Journey Through Life podcast will save 10% on all orders by using the code JUSTIN at checkout. That's J-U-S-T-I-N at checkout. Now, go and check out this awesome company at alifeuntold.com. The Journey Through Life podcast has also recently partnered with an innovative and exploding in-size company called Shepherd Brackets. Have you ever seen a floating shelf in a modern kitchen or a recently remodeled home? They appear as if they are just glued to the wall, but man, do they look awesome. I recently received two of these brackets from Shepherd Brackets and couldn't be more impressed and more excited. At Shepherd Brackets, brackets are what they do. Last year, they revolutionized the floating shelf industry with their original easy mount stud lock system. 
Their brackets are the most high-end brackets available. Made with USA steel, cut out on a precise CNC machine, and professionally welded, these brackets are guaranteed to be square and will easily hold over 100 pounds when mounted into the studs of your wall. The original Studlock floating shelf bracket for concealed floating shelves are heavy-duty and are the only brackets designed for side-to-side adjustment while still fastening to studs. To look into these high-quality brackets, please go to www.shepherdbrackets.com. Shepherd is spelled S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D, brackets, B-R-A-C-K-E-T-S, dot com, and see what all the crazy growth is about. In their Etsy store, just look up Shepherd Brackets on Etsy.com and you'll get to their store. Shepherd Brackets also sells super high quality, solid wood, floating shelves, mantles, and benches to be mounted onto the Shepherd Brackets, as well as um, router templates, drilling guides for perfectly placed, square, and straight floating shelves. These brackets and floating shelves, mantles, and benches really are very high quality strong, and strikingly beautiful. Now when you check out, please let them know that I sent you by typing in Justin at the promo coupon code areas at checkout. That's J-U-S-T-I-N for Shepherd Brackets. Now I'll go ahead and put the links to these different um, partners of the Journey Through Life podcast in the show notes. Also, I want you to stick around at the end of this episode of the Journey Through Life podcast for another In Their Own Words segment. This one is read actually by Dave Bush, the guest in this one, and it is about two of his great-grandfathers. It's a really interesting story about how Dave came to understand how music came into his life and why he thinks music has become such an important part and vital part of his life. Now on to this conversation I had with Dave Bush. Please sit back, enjoy, and learn something from this amazing man. Well, Dave, thanks for being willing to sit down and talk with me and and, uh, have this conversation. All right. So tell me a little bit about yourself, where you come from, where you originate, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting... um... When I retired this last year, one of my goals before my uh, father passed away was to write his life history. And of course, you can't write your parents' life history without writing your own. And so I think whenever you talk about origins, I thought in terms of his mother and his father. And then I started thinking especially about his mother's mother who passed away when she was just an infant mm. and uh, she was raised by an aunt and uncle and so she never knew her mother wow. and she really didn't know her father yeah, so I, th- I don't know where to begin with anyone's story because mm. those patterns that get established get established generations before you're ever born mm-hmm. So I went back at least as far as great-grandparents, and I was curious about how my grandmother saw herself and then how that influenced the way she raised my father uh, because of those losses, her own mother and her only daughter in infancy. 
And I think she may have been grieving when my dad was born. Hmm. Because he was born one year after his older sister who had passed away. Hmm. So I often wondered about, well, how did that impact my father to be raised by a woman that I always saw as just a little bit uh, somber. Hmm. And then juxtaposed with my grandfather, who loved to kind of tease. And I saw in my father attributes and qualities that later I saw in myself. And I wondered, well, did those behaviors come from those early life experiences? Hmm. So when I think about, well, what are my origins? I think my origins are uh, a family system that was really hardworking, um, kind of eking out a living mm. on dry farms in mm. eastern Idaho. And, uh, and then, even though my father's adolescence and young adulthood didn't depend on farming for survival, still that same work ethic in terms of his school experience and his work experience which later converted into kind of his church experience. Hmm. So from a young age, I felt like the system that I was a part of was just a little bit driven. Hmm. Um, and likewise, my mother growing up in a family system where uh, they picked up coal that had fallen off of train cars near their home oh, to wow. sell for bread so they'd have something to eat mm. in those later years of the Great Depression. Right. My experience was kind of just the opposite, never going without, mm. you know, probably as close to a middle-class suburban life experience, kind of the Leave it to Beaver or Ozzie and Harriet mm -hmm. kind of experience. And so my earliest memories in Idaho Falls were of uh, growing up in a brand new neighborhood with homes that by today's standards were small, but mm -hmm. back then were pretty nice. And never once worrying about whether we'd have enough. Mm. So hard work, um, ample blessings, and then just a fundamental belief in God raised in the gospel with parents that were always active. My father didn't serve a mission that wasn't part of the culture of his growing up. Mm -hmm. My great-grandfather had been offended because he was accused of dishonest behavior at the storehouse, which later was proved completely inaccurate. Mm. But he was offended that he his honor had even been questioned. Right. So he stopped participating in church and so my grandfather wasn't baptized till his 30s when my father was a young boy later the family was sealed in the temple but my uncles my father's two older brothers were never really active hmm. or involved but my father was very active and my mother was very active and they were married in the temple so as the second of five uh, there were some things that i really learned about family dynamics. I had an older sister and she bore the brunt of parental expectations mm. 
I escaped partly because I was male, but partly because I was the second child. Right. How far behind were you? A year and a half. A year and a half. Yeah, just a little over a year. So it wasn't that far behind her, but she still bore the brunt oh, of that. Absolutely. There was a big difference between you and her. There were a lot of expectations her, huh? for yeah. her. And uh, I think there were high expectations for me, but I'm grateful that she uh, paved the way. Hmm. And then I had uh, two younger brothers and a younger sister. And in that family dynamic, you know, if you look at Adler's family theory, the second child tends to be the overachiever, and mm. I certainly rose to that. Mm. Um, felt a lot of personal expectations academically mm. and athletically and, and even spiritually. But you didn't feel that ex those expectations coming from outside necessarily they're more of a personal drive is that I think so yeah um even though I knew that uh in our home there were just certain things expected that mm -hmm. there's no question even from a young childhood your bed was made mm -hmm. your chore was done your piano was practiced right uh, if you had homework, your homework was done. Before you ever even asked, can I go play? Right. If those things were done, if your fourth of the yard was weeded or whatever, then uh, we just ran. I can remember so many adventures mm. that I had from as early as age four and five mm. all the way up to high school that by today's standards... Mm -hmm would never happen. I mean, huh. I'd just go with my friends and we would roam. We'd be down at the canal. We'd be along the highway. We'd be in, in places that, again, today, mm -hmm. parents would be accused of neglect. Oh, yeah. But it, it just was kind of the expectation that right. kids were allowed to kind of grow up. So were there any, were there any of those adventurous um, uh, uh, experiences that you had that you find as kind of a pivotal moment or something that kind of helped you grow from that point to, you know, a next point in your life, I guess. Certainly. There, there were, uh, and these are ones that I have a clear memory of. Yeah. Uh, kind of escapades with young friends. And we weren't malicious. Right. But as they were building new houses, we thought it was really cool to try our bow and arrows out on the insulation. Mm. <laughs> and we loved to practice painting our names with the five-gallon paint cans that were left. <laughs> and, and again, I don't know how many hundreds of damage we, we got caught. Mm-hmm. Because you're painting your name. <laughs> right, yeah. And uh, and I don't know how much my parents had to pay for the damages, but I was certain we were going to end up in jail. Wow. Or we would, you know, uh, play mailman, and we would go along the street and take people's mail and put it in the bag, and then we would redistribute it. And that was another one that the county sheriff picked us up, you know. So I, I look back on that, and I think, oh, my goodness. And, and, and I don't think we were... We were bad kids. Right. We just were very creative right. and imaginative. You weren't doing it out of spite or out no. of any malicious uh, intent. It just, but I'm, you're I'm having fun doing it. certain we drove my mom nuts uh, <laughs> catching garter snakes and putting them down our shirts and then coming in. And when she would make us peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, the snake would start <laughs> crawling out of our T-shirt and she would freak out. And just lots of fun things. But I had, I had this group of friends about my age and then likewise we moved from Idaho Falls to Denver hmm. and I spent most of my growing up years in Denver then that same opportunity to go and kind of run with friends and I don't remember getting in trouble but just uh, doing lots of 
creating lots of adventures, some mm. of them quite dangerous, mm. similar to Thomas S. Monson lighting fields on fire, mm. one of them getting away from us that, that could have done serious damage, mm. but fortunately was put out before there was any, any structural damage. And, and just that curiosity, I was fascinated um, with fireworks and the like, and we made homemade cannons and other things. Right. That it, as I think about it, launching golf balls out into the neighborhood having no clue where they were landing, I, I shake my head now and think, what were we thinking? But that right. was the problem. We weren't. You weren't thinking. So that curiosity, I mean, that's, that's, that is a trait that can be really uh, helpful in life. It can also cause some problems in life. Sure. Um, is that something, do you feel that the curiosity you had for, you know, fire, fireworks, explosives, whatever, do you feel that was more than a typical boy? Or do you feel that you just... I mean, I see it in my grandsons. So, and I think fortunately, you know, as my friends and I emerged into adolescence, we we saw the destructive power of some of those things, Mm -hmm. especially M80s and cherry bombs and, you know, uh, that could blow up a mailbox or, and then realizing, oh my goodness, there's shrapnel involved here. Right, And I think kind of coming to our senses before we lost any fingers or eyes or anything. Um, So... I think I was really blessed that we didn't have any tragic experiences mm. as we were learning the right. laws of physics. Um, mm. But I think I had that curiosity, and, and still do. I, I'm, I've been fascinated with how things work, why they work. So mm. it evolved eventually into kind of combining the laws of physics with the laws of psychology to understand human behavior. Mm. and really kind of drove my passion for studying you know, understanding my own behavior, but the behavior mm. of others. So, so about how old were you when you moved to Denver? So I, I was born in Ohio. We lived in Idaho Falls for about uh, five years. Mm-hmm. Then Denver from about age eight until 12. Dad was with Martin Marietta in aerospace. Okay. And we took a year to go down to Cape Kennedy in Florida, which was an adventure wow. all itself because we lived on Merritt Island out by the Cape. Oh, wow. Surrounded by alligators and snakes and all kinds of fun oh. things. A and great then, place for a curious oh, kid to explore, goodness. huh? Yeah, I, I had so many adventures there. But then back to Denver to finish up junior high and high school. And mm-hmm. then uh, while I was on my mission, Dad transferred with Martin Marietta to their aluminum division in the Dells. But the Dallas was never home. That mm. was, by that point, I went on my mission, went to college, and even though my folks lived in the Dallas longer than anywhere else, mm. I considered Denver my home. Denver was your home. So what uh, you you alluded to um, what you do professionally now. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about your path of getting to to decide that's what you wanted to do in life. And what and what is that actually? Yeah, so so I, I started out at about age sixteen, pondering, you know, where what would I do after I graduate graduated high school? And my home teaching partner at the time was a physician, brother Best. So one time when we were home teaching, I can't remember whether brother Best asked or one of our home teaching families asked, well, what do you think you'll do after high school? And and I just came up with out of the blue, I think I'll be a neurosurgeon. Hmm. And everybody wow. and everybody said, wow. Mm-hmm. And I liked the reaction. So for from about age 16 to about age 21, every time someone asked, what do you want to do with your life? I said, I've been, I've been thinking of neurosurgery. And inevitably, the same reaction, wow. 
<laughs> to the point that I, for two years of college, majored in chemistry and hated it. Mm. Um, and finally got to my junior year and thought, I, I do not want to do this. Now, mm. I know that organic chemistry is not medicine. Right. But it was, the, the professor was arrogant and demeaning. And that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. And that same semester, my last general education course was Introduction to Psychology, and I loved mm. it. Mm. And I was fascinated by the question of why we behave the way we do. And that, mm. that set me on a path that, you know, that I pursued the last 40 years. Mm. So at that point, I just uh, switched majors and... Uh, Graduated with a degree in psychology and a minor in chemistry and a minor in Japanese, and hmm. I was off to the races. So, so a minor in Japanese. Is, did you serve, serve a mission, mission in, in Japan? In Japan. Okay. Tell yeah. me a little bit about that. What? Uh, tell me about an experience there that you can look back on and either look back on with that was really a, a strengthening experience or one I wish I would have done that differently. Well, the turning point in my mission was about 18 months in. Mm -hmm. It takes about a year to even get to the point where you can carry on a healthy conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and at the one-year mark, uh, I was discouraged because we worked hard. We were good missionaries. We were obedient. Uh, we taught a lot. I would say three or four lessons a night. Mm. But it was grueling. And and very, very seldom did anyone go past the second lesson. Uh, almost always the first or second lesson. And then we finally found a golden family. I was certain that's why I'd been sent to Japan. Mm. <laughs> and then after the fourth lesson, and they'd been to church twice, which was unheard of. Four kids, which was unheard of in Japan. Right. Um, I, I was devastated. The dad just told us not to come back. Mm. So I was reeling for about the next six months of my mission, wondering, why am I here? Mm. Still working hard, still teaching a lot, um, but uh, my wonderful companion in Kitami, which is way north, had appendicitis, and, and the nurse that took care of him, he taught her the gospel, she was baptized. Mm. But up to that point, you know, really, aside from you know, Sato Shimai, that was, that was about it, and I just thought, and I'm having no success. Right. So I was up all one night just kind of pleading with Heavenly Father. Help me figure out why I'm even here. And uh, the distinct voice, you know, one of those moments, not an audible voice, but just such a powerful, distinct message in your mind. That this is not your work. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, basically, this is not about you. Right. And, it, you know, that's so obvious now, but at the time, it was such a revelation. Mm. Uh, I was marking kind of my success in terms of what I accomplished and uh, thinking it was all about me. And once you get to that point, and I hope all missionaries get to that at some point, that they just realize you work hard, you love people, you teach, but it's not about you. <laughs> Then your mission becomes a joy. And the last six months of my mission were just, I got to serve with Elder Garrison, you know, one of the great mm. legends. He was in my group and mm. kindest, most Christ-like man I've ever met, you know. Mm. We served together for several months and had so much fun and 
got to see serve in leadership and work with the president, and so had so many sacred experiences mm. during that time. And then the president asking us uh, the last couple months of our mission, where do you want to finish? Mm. And I wanted to finish with this really awesome brand new missionary in the best place in the mission. <laughs> he sent me to a really difficult area with this one missionary that I did not like. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And it was awesome. Yeah. Because I was able to resolve some of our differences and really have a, a good conclusion. Whereas Elder Garrison said, I don't care where I serve, I just want to serve with this one elder that had accomplished nothing his mm -hmm. entire mission, hadn't learned the language, was just marking time. Mm and saved his mission. Hmm. So what was your initial response when the mission president sent you to your last area with the person that you really didn't get along before that and then in an area that was really hard? What were your first responses? I trusted him completely. I'd had so many experiences with President Koizumi that I knew uh, he, his decisions were inspired, mine were not. Hmm. <laughs> I'd, I'd had that witness to me several months <laughs> as we tried to help figure out with transfers who's going to be assigned with who, and I would come in with my list so proud, not what I would be, <laughs> consistent with the presidents, and his were always right. Right. So I, I, I really trusted his judgment, mm. and and I also learned from Elder Garrison, you know, that his motives again were, were how can I help this one missionary have a success, and they did. They had an amazing last couple months huh. before this one elder and before we went home. So, so I learned so many important lessons about service that shaped the rest of my life. I learned about obedience and listening to the Spirit, following, you know, uh, inspired leaders and uh, working together, effective communication, effective teaching. Hmm. And at that point, I had shifted from wanting to be a neurosurgeon, even though I went back and told everybody I was pre-med. Right. I really wanted to teach. Hmm. And I, for a long time, probably two years decided I was going to teach seminary because I loved to teach. Hmm. And that's eventually kind of the direction I went in terms of higher education. Okay. So psychology, education. So did you spend a lot of time in university teaching then? Is that, I do I understand that correctly? Yeah. So I, uh, once I got into psychology and uh, then I got my secondary ed teaching certificate at the same time, and I also did this seminary teacher preparation. Mm. And initially was going to teach at East High School in Salt Lake mm. after I'd done my student teaching. But I ended up getting my master's degree in school counseling first. And then they withdrew the teaching offer. Oh. And so I ended up becoming a school counselor mm. for about three years in Rexburg, Idaho. And, and I had a chance to teach and counsel students without any kind of adequate salary. Mm, right, <laughs> I had a, right. I had a master's degree and was making $10,000 and we had three kids. Uh, it was impossible. Yeah. So then I thought, okay, this isn't working. I went back, got my PhD in, in clinical psychology, went in the Air Force because by that time we had uh, five kids mm. and uh, it was the only internship that would pay enough that we could survive. Right. Then after I got out of the Air Force, did community mental health, private practice, and then finally settled in the perfect setting where I was able to be the director of counseling at Utah State University, uh, teach a class each semester for the psychology department, hmm. and supervise doctoral students so I could teach 
council supervise, mm -hmm. it, uh, do assessment. It was right. the best of all worlds. So, so in the Air Force, first of all, how long were you there? And then were you stationed, you know, locally, or did they send you off to do your counseling psychology stuff all over the place? How, how, tell me what that looked like. So the internship was at Wilford Hall at San Antonio, which is the largest military hospital in the armed forces. Okay. And so you saw an array of interesting cases that I'll never see the rest of my career. Right. Fascinating stuff. And I, ironically, I did emphasize neuropsych assessment. Hmm. So interesting. Instead of operating on brains, I just assessed brain damage and other mm -hmm. uh, insults to the central nervous system. Mm. So I, I did pursue that passion, right. just in a slightly different format. Right. And, uh, and then you do a payback, and uh, uh, we were already in Great Falls, Montana, and so there was an opportunity there, and uh, I went with one of my colleagues, and we opened a called Spectrum Learning to work with kids that had learning disabilities mm. and do assessment and interventions yeah. and, and then other clients as well. But the stress of private practice, I'm not much of a businessman and so mm. when people wouldn't pay their bills, sometimes in the thousands of dollars, yeah. you know, it's just like, oh well, I would never You'd pursue. you never chase it down. Now. Mm. So when the opportunity came at Utah State to kind of have this guaranteed income and to do something I loved, Mm -hmm. uh, then it was it was perfect fit. So that's where we spent thirty years. Thirty years in the Logan area, mm -hmm. and it nice. was a great place to raise our kids. We ended up with eight children, and mm. the Logan City Schools was they were ideal for our kids because Ted Ashton, who eventually went to BYU Idaho, had developed a strings program that was second to none in the country. Like a like. Strings like violin, viola, yes. cello, Starting bass. Starting fourth grade all the way up through senior high. And when uh -huh. you saw hundreds of musicians on the stage at the Monster concert at the end of the year hmm. playing remarkable music, hmm. especially the high school orchestra, it was inspiring. Wow. So all of our kids were part of that program, and, and then they were all part of theater arts. They were all part of AP courses. They were all involved in athletics. Hmm. Um, so it was just for us, with eight kids who loved so many things, it was the perfect blend of academic success, athletic success, artistic opportunities. And Michael Ballum was in our ward, and he had started the Utah Festival Opera Company. And so our kids got parts in the operas and in the local productions. Oh, nice. And they, most of them, not all of them, liked being on stage. So they all were in the Nutcracker, and they were all Right, right. So it worked out as a kind of a perfect setting for our family hmm. for the you know the next twenty years as our kids were growing up. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna go back again a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, back to San Antonio. Okay. About what time frame? What what year span was this in that you were working in San Antonio in that uh, hospital there, the military hospital? So we we, uh, we finished graduate school in. Um, 83, we went to San Antonio, spent just a year and a half there, and our payback. So my PhD was finished in 84. We were kind of in private practice by about 86. And then we left Montana and came to Great Falls, or Logan in 89. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And so our oldest daughter was 12, and our youngest was just born. Hmm. And shortly after our youngest was born, uh, Kathy was the PTA president hmm. at Wilson Elementary. And I got called to be bishop. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, it was, you know, the most stressful, chaotic time, because hmm. I think we had five of our kids playing on five different soccer teams. Yeah. And I was coaching two of them. Oh, wow. And Kathy was really involved, and we had an amazing ward with 105 youth, mm. 55 young men and about 50 young women. Wow. And so as a bishop, I had multiple youth interviews every Sunday, and my counselors and I did nothing but the youth. We mm. turned the rest of the ward over to the uh, high priest, the elders quorum, the Relief Society, and we just focused on the youth. So it was a delight, and it was a, a somewhat affluent ward. So. Mm. There weren't economic issues, um, really. I, I'm sure there were, you know, relationship issues because I did some counseling as a bishop. But uh, relatively speaking, stable, healthy families mm -hmm. with pretty active kids. Um, so it was like being bishop of the celestial kingdom. So, you know, on your mission, you had that uh, revelatory experience of it's not about you. Um, how did that carry over in helping you through these different steps that we've gotten to up to this point where you're now a bishop of a ward in Logan? Is that, is that a, a theme that was recurring, or is that something you, you uh, always carried with you, or is that something you had to learn over and over and over again? Well, I think that um, the, on the positive side, it made it so easy to serve in multiple bishoprics and multiple church assignments. We always served. We always went to the temple. So those those habits, those patterns, we had family home union, family prayer, all the things that you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. On the downside, it was never enough. Hmm. Explain that. It was never enough. What does that mean? Um, I think that's where, uh, the you know, in terms of your, your struggles, at least for me, that no matter how hard I worked, whether it was in school or in a church assignment, um, in a class, in a, a calling, whatever. You just always felt like you're wanting. And I think that, that unhealthy perfectionism was what really, I think, drove those personal struggles. Mm. So on the, on the very positive side, no question about what was most important, how to invest time. Uh, but... Sometimes you can just suck the joy out of some of those experiences, even though they were very positive, mm -hmm. just because you tend to beat yourself up, feeling like, I, I wasn't have, perfect I done more, yeah. or I didn't do enough here. And, and that was one of the things that I noticed in some of our children. Mm. And really, and then you can blame yourself for that. Oh, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I modeled that for them. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a theme that I really worked on not only in myself, but with the students that I would work with, because I saw that in, in so many really good students uh, having that same struggle. So I myself was raised in a um, perfectionist home. Um, I myself have been and still struggle with that perfectionism where I want to, even if even if it's a mess inside the house or inside the body, 
inside the heart. I want to give the image that oh, yeah. all's well here. How do you, I mean, you said that you encountered that in your own life and it was uh, it reflected in some of your kids' lives and you've done counseling with individuals and yourself with that. How, uh, tell me about your wake up moment with that where, where you realized this is not how I should be. Well, I think the first experience was just in adolescence when Bishop Bullock had me when I was ordained as a priest, you know, and asked the ward's sustaining vote. And he has me up there at the pulpit, and he says, don't you wish all the young men in the church were like Dave? Mm. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, if you're a typical adolescent and have thoughts that are inappropriate or just right. some of those uh, developmental issues related to your sexuality and the like that, that are... Are, are not shameful, but in that moment they become pronounced, and so you feel like, oh, Bishop, if you only knew. Or, right. And and then you just feel, you feel on top of those typical struggles of adolescence, now you feel like you're a liar, hmm. uh, and that you're a fraud. A hypocrite. So that when you bless the sacrament or whatever, you know, you, you feel shame, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, if I could well, as a bishop, that was one of my primary purposes. I knew that, with the exception of one of those 55 young men, <laughs> that they struggled with, uh, you know, masturbation and those typical adolescent issues. Mm-hmm. And my approach was to be open and honest with them about it and talk about it as an immature behavior rather than as a shameful behavior. Mm. And that Heavenly Father wants us to kind of stop sucking our thumb and right. and learn how to understand mm. and express those those thoughts and feelings in a way that is a little more mature and a little, mm-hmm. and a little more um, uh, genuine mm-hmm. rather than artificial or contrived. Mm. And so that took years to kind of understand because there were so many times through late adolescence, young adulthood, where that perfectionism drove those feelings of guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, I think, I think until I really developed my own model of human behavior that I realized that any of those illegitimate expressions of legitimate underlying God-given needs, mm-hmm. you know, uh, once we understand that there are those legitimate needs, then we find a healthy way to address those. Hmm. Otherwise, we spend much of our life pursuing, you know, the distractions. Mm-hmm. And whether that's porn or whether that's, um, you know, other acting out behavior, it's never fulfilling because hmm. it's not genuine. Right. Once you realize the genuine side of it and you put your energy and efforts there and realize and admit this is. This is just a, a distraction. Mm-hmm. Then y- your your uh, motivation for change shifts from fear based mm-hmm. to a love based motivation for change. Right. So so you mentioned that um, you know when you were standing up there as a newly uh, not quite ordained priest, but being sustained uh, as a priest and your bishop saying, "Hey, if everybody was like Dave, this would be amazing." Um, and and that sense of being a liar or a hypocrite at that right. point, That's and then you also right, and you also shared that it was something that you carried, you know, and and it built stressful even through, 
you know, times when you were a bishop, what has there been a place where where that um, drive to appear or be or whatever perfect where it was broken and where you went, okay, yes, this isn't good just for others, but it's also something that I need to do in my own life. Yeah, I think there were there were two two uh, kind of turning points. The first as a father, realizing my own children's adolescent struggle, and just acknowledging to them the truth, you know, that I've made mistakes just like you're making mistakes, and it's all part of the deal. Mm-hmm. This is how you learn and grow. This is how you learn to trust Heavenly Father's plan, to uh, believe Him when He says that your desires, appetites, and passions are to be kept within the bounds He has set. Once you get that, then it is so much easier. Hmm. And when you doubt that or trust or uh, test that, you know, it's always fraught with heartache. And so being more genuine with my children to help them get off of that perfectionism bandwagon hmm. and just to be real. Learning that concept of uh, total surrender mm-hmm. or uh, radical acceptance, just those mindful concepts of... Um, really being honest with yourself and with God makes it easier to be honest with others. Um, And then I think the second piece was uh, just how exhausting it is to try to maintain that artificial exterior Mm -hmm. um, without necessarily having to put yourself down because, you know, in hindsight, I really was. Compared to 99% of my peers, I wasn't out there doing really outrageous things. I mean, my level of acting out was pretty tame. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I thought, you know, I was a pretty good kid. Um, But I also made typical adolescent mistakes. Right. And so I thought, how do you own your goodness, maintaining a sense of humility and total dependence on God without appearing arrogant Mm. and trying to find that balance between just being good uh, without beating yourself up and without boasting. And right. So that's been a lifelong challenge. And I, what I've come to is that when we just admit that we have our limitations, then we're driven primarily by gratitude when things are going perfect. And we're driven by... Um, humility when things are hard Hmm. and so there have been multiple times in my life where I've had to rely completely on Heavenly Father Hmm. either because of you know after 50 years of perfect health one health challenge after another Hmm. the last 15 years you know heart attack cancer even even dumb things like shingles um which uh, probably was about as oh miserable as any of the other things put together. Stone. I mean, just these yeah. little dumpy, but they hurt yeah. like sin. Yeah. And so each one of those, you know, these are kind of your baby Job experiences mm-hmm. where you just, I mean, quite frankly, you just get to the place where you kind of chuckle and say, all right, here's another one. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've probably experienced in the last 15 years, at least a dozen kinds of pain, uh, but each one of them being so rich mm. in teaching opportunities. And so mm. no sense of being picked on. Right. Just the opposite, feeling blessed 
Hmm. I think that's where that the gratitude comes in is you, you, you get to a place where you are genuinely grateful for those experiences. Hmm. Um, you don't just try to endure them. You want to learn from them. Hmm. You're curious about them. So that's where that curiosity, curiosity is still a major part of my life experiences. I'm thinking, whoa. Like when I was diagnosed with cancer in yeah. 2010, I thought, mm. where did that come from? Yeah, so t- t- did talk about that, that a little bit. Yeah. Well, up to that point, I hadn't missed a day of work or school in my life. Seriously, mm. from, wow. from elementary school all the way up to my university experience, I'd never missed school. And uh, I was just tired all the time, and I couldn't figure it out. And I'd had a heart stamp put in in 2000 when I had a minor heart attack. Okay. And so I thought, well, my stent must be failing because it was 2010, and mm. the cardiologist told me typically a stent will last 10 years. So I had convinced the cardiologist to go in and do another angioplasty. Mm. And I got prepped, and they did the blood work, and he came back and said, it's not your heart. <laughs> and my son-in-law, who's a physician, was in the room, mm. and he starts ticking off the seven you know, s- symptoms and said, I think you have CLL. And what's CLL? Chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Okay. And he was right on the money. Wow. So I thought, well, I wasn't expecting that. And, uh, but, again, the blessing associated that, it just crystallizes your purpose at that point. All the Hmm. trivial things just fade into insignificance. And so for the next six months as I was doing chemo, which is really awful, but the way I coped was I went to work. I'd do chemo for uh, three or four hours in the morning. Then I'd work all afternoon hmm. uh, rather than sit home and just be miserable. And you'd, be, you'd feel awful for about five days. Then you'd get a couple weeks off. Then you'd go back and you'd get blasted again hmm. and do that for six months. See, and I had no idea that you had had a cancer diagnosis. Now, chronic... Lymphocytic. Lymphocytic leukemia. leukemia. But chronic means you still have oh, it, correct? Yeah, yeah I... But what's, again, i got to tell you the miracle yeah. of this. I mean, it's yeah, so, tell me. so phenomenal. So I do six months of treatment, get five years of remission, comes okay. back in hmm. 2016. I do six more months of awful chemotherapy. <laughs> I think I will never do this again. Right. If it comes back a third time, I'm done. Yeah. And it comes back again huh. two years later. And so now oh. it's, it's clear that the, you know, the cancer cells are so, so smart. So they figured a way around the fluidorbin, cytoxin, and rituxin. And my son-in-law, who's a hematologist, said, you know, there's a new treatment. I mm-hmm. said, awesome, because we were getting ready to submit our mission papers. I knew they wouldn't send us if I active. Know, had active uh, cancer. And so right. uh, I looked into it, and it was, it was, the results were very promising with... Uh, the Brutinib or Abruvimax, this this medication that uh, instead of trying to destroy the cancer cells, it disrupts the communication between cancer cells. So it's, mm. it's a brilliant like encapsulates them or something. Yeah, something so the, like that. The cell walls don't can't help talk to each disrupts, other. Or whatever. Yeah, right. Disrupts the regeneration process. So uh-huh. uh, I said well, that's great. So I looked into it. Forty-seven thousand dollars a month. A month. Uh, Nobody could afford that. Right. And even with great insurance, it's $11,000. Yeah. So I thought, well, forget that. Mm-hmm. Can't figure out why we're not getting our mission call. And so we finally get our mission call to Spokane. And mm-hmm. two days after we get here, mm-hmm. 
I meet Vicki Townsend, who used to be release really president of Shadow Hills. Okay. And she works for Dr. Chadre, premier oncologist, hmm. and tells me, you should apply for the research study huh. with CLL. Oh. <laughs> Retractive CLL. Wow. I go with... So now I'm patient 001 in this research study that started the week we got here on our mission. So you're actively in this while you're yep. serving a mission. Yeah. And, wow. And the medication cost me zero. Ah. Oh. And, and it's working, you know. Wow. So I think what I've learned through all of this is that, and if you just trust that, again, there's a bigger plan. It's mm. not about you. It's just that there's this... Hmm. Hmm, going on in the universe and if you just believe in it stay on the covenant path and just believe in it then all these things that on the surface look like you know difficulties or trials or challenges existential struggles really yeah, yeah. they are just opportunities and so our opportunity now is is phenomenal yeah so again I, i'm not joking when i say we are so blessed uh, i mean how could anyone in my situation feel like the, anything other than just incredible blast. Yeah. So. And over the last 15 years, you said struggle after struggle after struggle. Right. How? And, and, and I think you've touched on this, but I want to dig a little bit there. Sure. Because so many people, I think myself included, if I were um, confronted with that, it would be really, really easy to go into a victim type okay. mode. So how do you battle that? Well... You finally get to the place where you realize there's so many variables outside of your control. Um, I loved my career. You know, I just had such a, a wonderful career. But there were two points in my career. Once when I got passed over for the director's position, uh, and I thought I was by far the best candidate, and, mm. and most of my colleagues thought I was. And so mm. everyone was surprised when I didn't get it. And I, out of pride, was going to just walk. Mm. But our kids were so well established and doing mm. so well, I didn't want to mess up things. So I humbled myself and stayed, and, and still love my job. I just didn't mm -hmm. get the recognition or the pay mm -hmm. that I thought I deserved. And then eventually, it's, it's not really a funny story, but kind of an interesting story. Is uh -huh. Shortly after that, the person that was appointed director was in a head-on accident, and, mm -hmm. and so was gone, and then I was made the appointed the director. And so, huh. um, and I don't think it was because she'd done anything bad. Right, right. It's just circumstances. And right. so the, the opportunity presented itself to finish my the last 10 years of my career in the position that I'd wanted. And then at the end, the, the administration changes and administration things made what had been like the perfect career just awful. So the, mm. the last year of my career was not anything what I thought it would be. Mm. And I didn't know that I would ever retire, but it made mm. retirement look really good. So there, there are these, right? And then again, if you look at the big picture, if I hadn't retired and submitted mission papers when I did, mm -hmm. to arrive here almost the day that I needed to be here, right? Then I probably wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> so, how could you see that problem as anything but a blessing? Mm. So I, when you say, well, why, why don't you become a victim? I mean, there were times where I thought, why? I don't understand. 
I went to the vice president. I said, I, I, I don't understand why you're doing this. I, I just don't understand. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's forces outside of my control. Uh -huh. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there were just so many things that you could become bitter about. But then what? Hmm. If you let that ruin your experience, uh, fundamentally what you're buying into is the victim orientation. Right. And if you just accept the fact, you know, there are so many hundreds and thousands of variables I don't control, then you can put all of your energy into things you can do something about. Mm. So when you look at those hundreds of thousands of things that you can't control and the things that you can put your energy into and, and have a, a, an influence on how those really work out, if not even control, I guess, right. on, on those things, how do you... Um, make the differentiation between those things that are under your control and those things that are not. I mean, that's one of the big challenges in life. I mean, yeah. for me, yeah. I want to control so many things that are outside of my control, including my own kids, you oh, know? Yeah, well, I learned They're that. out of my control. I learned but, that when they were one and two. Yeah. That I had no control. And so it's a serious. I taught a parenting class for almost 30 years, mm. being in charge versus being in control. Mm. Being in control is Satan's plan. Being in charge is Heavenly Father's plan. Heavenly Father is in charge. If there's ever any question in your mind, just, again, mm -hmm. just look around. Right. He's in charge, but we are in control of our own lives. You know, we are responsible. But we can't control anybody else's life, right. even our one-year-old child. Right. And if you've ever been a parent, you know. Uh, yes, and I have when been. And when they're I, tantrum, I know. You, you can't control. <laughs> and so you give up control because that's Satan's plan, and you do DNC 121, you know, you, you know long-suffering, patience, yeah. kind of, all that. All the things that, that allow you to have profound influence, and, and, and those are all internal things. Love unfeigned is an internal thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> A child's obedience is an external thing. Mm -hmm. I can't control their obedience, but I can certainly control my unfeigned love for them. For them. And I can reprove them with clarity when moved upon by the Spirit, showing afterwards an increase of love. Right. And have a profound influence. Hmm. Or I can try to just whip them in shape, and that never works. Right. They just, they just rebel. Yeah. And so I think I learned early on with our children, and then realized, oh, maybe I'd apply that to myself. Because mm. I was so hard on myself. I was I was trying to control myself. Yeah. Instead of love myself and influence myself. So I took that all those wonderful scriptures by Paul, you know, in Romans about, you know, the man that I would be that I'm not. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, uh, the or, you know, the natural man versus the spirit and mm -hmm. and all of that and realized, okay, so it's not about our spiritual identity crushing our physical identity. It's our physical identity yielding to our spiritual identity. Hmm. When you get that, then your emphasis is on, uh, again, curiosity, understanding. Hmm. Where is this feeling coming from? Where is this thought coming from? Where is hmm. this drive coming from? What is this need? And if you stay internally focused on who you really are, mm -hmm. Then your attitude shifts, your emotional awareness increases, your capacity to distinguish between needs and wants becomes crystal clear, and you can intentionally assess your values mm -hmm. and behave in such a way that you are consistent with what you say you believe.
And then you feel the influence of the Spirit. Hmm. Not only in your own life, but in those around you. Right, and you can reflect it better that way too. Because there's no compulsion. And without compulsory means, it shall flow unto you forever and ever. And so on, in those sweet moments, which are sometimes few and far between, but in those sweet moments, right, right. when you really get it, you are at complete peace. And then the rest of the time, you're trying to make things happen. <laughs> And most of the time, you're just frustrated, <laughs> especially in marriage. Right. When yeah. you're trying to control another human being, you just realize, like, this is pointless. So, you know, that's that's something I still work on, you know, as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather, mm-hmm. as a missionary. Right. You, you, you want to influence without trying to control. And so you have to give up any pretense. You know, it, it's unfeigned. There's no guile. Mm. Uh, there's no deception, and 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 then, like I have a grandson right now that I can say, you know, I think your decision, the two most important decisions you'll make in the next ten years of your life are whether you'll serve a mission and whether you'll uh, marry in the temple. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, whether you choose those things is really between you and your heavenly Father. As your grandfather, that's my encouragement. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But it won't change how I feel about you. Mm. It'll just change the quality of your life experience. So how, how do you create that unfeigned love? You know, there are some people in, in, that I interact with that I, I you know, I, I think I love them. I think I appreciate who they are. But sometimes it's not unfeigned. Sometimes it's like, hey. I think you have to be genuine. Uh I, I had a conversation, because one of the things that we find, you know, is we interact with folks who are making really poor choices, and then some that are dishonest and want to mm-hmm. use helping institutions, and sometimes you just have to call it what it is. You can say, you know, uh, government assistance is not the same as church support. Mm. Government assistance is designed to create dependence. <laughs> church support is designed to promote independence. And so if you're not coming to church, if you're not attending self-reliance, if you're not giving back, then you really don't qualify Mm. for church support. And so, you know, you decide. Now, I'm not a common judge. It's not my place to make a decision. But if you want me to give you honest feedback, (laughs) or even if you don't, (laughs) I'm going to give it to you. And so there are some people that, you know, don't necessarily appreciate Mm -hmm. that. Uh, I still care for them, but I want to be completely clear. And I think then the respect increases in the relationship. The influence increases because you're not saying one thing but um, believing another. Hmm. And I think the only time we get in trouble is if uh, we're smiling on the outside and mm-hmm. providing support when we're thinking, you are so dishonest and manipulative. But that way I can be really candid. Mm-hmm. With with uh, individuals that I struggle with, as mm-hmm. a, you know, I'm I'm struggling with the decisions you're making that I know are enabling your self defeating behaviors, mm-hmm. and the, whether that's a word of wisdom issue, whether that's a dishonesty issue, whether that's mm-hmm. a relationship issue, uh, I can just be really candid and say, mm-hmm. you know, if you sleep with somebody that's not your spouse, it's going to create heartache. You know, it's not going to change how I feel about you, other right. than that I, I realize you are making a poor choice. But I'm not going to pretend the way you're doing is 
makes any sense given my value structure and, and my life experience. Mm -hmm. And so I'll share with you, you know, what makes sense to me. It rarely does anyone making those decisions care about <laughs> my opinion. Uh, but I will certainly be honest with you about mm -hmm. my concerns. And then you'll... And what's interesting is they've already, they, they will already tell me, I know mm -hmm. I shouldn't be drinking or I know... I, I'm not this way. You know, I should be doing this, and and I'll say, so what do you what do you want to do with that? Um, so that way you don't you don't get upset because my success or failure doesn't hinge. Like as a psychologist working with clients, mm -hmm. my success or failure failure had nothing to do with their choices. My success or failure had to do with how honest I was. And, you know, Rogers said that if you demonstrate authenticity mm -hmm. and unconditional regard with with the individual and, and true empathy that you could influence the process of change. Mm -hmm. But if you don't really empathize with or if you're not real, you know, uh, and, and if you're judgmental, mm -hmm. how, how can you really help facilitate mm -hmm. change? No, I, I, I like these points that you're bringing up here, it's, it's, it's helping me think quite a bit and, and think about my own um, interaction with people, making sure that I'm coming from a place of, you know, real intent, a place yeah. of purity. I think what I love about the group process, I loved group from the beginning of my career, and I still love being parts of support groups because I think that the group allows for that genuineness. You know, if somebody's doing something really making boneheaded decisions. Mm -hmm. You don't have to pretend that they're making good choices. Right. But you can still express love for them and support, and you can share with them options, and, and then you can, you know, testify of true principles so that if they'll put those into practice, you can, you can promise them, well, your life will be um, not necessarily easier, but right. it will sure be, you'll, you'll enjoy it a lot more. There'll be more meaning behind it. There'll be so much more meaning behind it. Right. And... And when you, when you share that in a circle of, of individuals, regardless, and, and you can say to them, you know, man, I'm, I'm so happy you're here. Yeah. What, a, what a difference it makes. Because uh, there's no chastisement. There's just uh, learning and growth and support. Hmm. So if you, and I'm going to kind of shift a little bit here, mm -hmm. but if you were to boil down your life's motto, your reason, your own personal reason for um, being here in life, what would that boil down to in one phrase? Our family motto from the time our kids were little was just bush bunch be your best. And our daughter kind of used this four leaf clover that my grandfather had from his 50th wedding anniversary mm. that he that was the only thing I wanted when he died because mm. he had winked at me as Kathy and I walked out of his house before we got engaged and mm. pointed to the four-leaf clover. So that became kind of a symbol, not of good luck, but just of those, those principles of faith and family and having uh, kind of a, having fun, you know, mm. enjoying the process and, and, and just being your best. It was a symbol, so we, you know, that just hung over the doorpost, you know. Mm. You know, there's all those family sayings of return with honor mm -hmm. and, 
and uh, remember who you are. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was just be your best. You know, be your best. Mm -hmm. and, and that was driven by those core values of faith in, in a power greater than yourself mm -hmm. and, and family that, man, nothing else that you do, work, anything else, church callings mm -hmm. isn't going to trump your, your core family. And if you're not having fun somewhere along the way, uh, and you can't do that if you're not mentally fit, physically fit, mm. emotionally and spiritually fit. Mm. So we had these core values that drove kind of our experience. And fortunately, Kathy and I were just, there's a lot of things we struggle with, like dumb things, mm. you know. But when it comes to raising family and, and having that be our focus, mm -hmm. that has guided everything we've done the last 40 years together mm. and yeah. so it's made it so much easier that we were really united in that so how do you uh, reconcile is not the right word how do you take that that motto bush bunch be your best mm -hmm. and the perfectionist idea how do you make a, a division between those or, or bring those to reconcile might be the right word. No, that's, so. that's still an ongoing process. I think the healthy application is, is healthy striving. You're just always working towards self-improvement hmm. at the same time knowing that you're enough. Hmm. And that part, you know, the whole concept of grace mm -hmm. is the still the mystery that I'm working to understand. Hmm. I get the works part. You know, that, that part's easy. I've spent my whole life, you know, on good works, trying to earn my way into heaven. But the, the grace piece is the part that I'm still wanting to just fully understand. And, and that's the one, you know, if you can couple those constructs together, then the bush bush be your best, acknowledges that our loving Heavenly Father just adores us, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, is so pleased with all our efforts. Right. Um, and I think as a grandfather, you you start to get that, you know, uh, as you're you're just so delighted in your grandchildren and and your children as well. But you just start to, you know, get a bigger picture. Of a broader perspective of yeah. what these accomplishments mean. So, so in your current understanding, I'm going to go back to what you just said there. What does grace mean to you in your current understanding of that word, of that concept? That that my efforts are acceptable. You know, um, that I don't have to do anything else to earn love. Um, that love exists, hmm. and if if I'm open to it, then I'll just experience it and all the goodness that comes with it. Hmm. If I withhold love, specifically from myself, but from another, then um, you know I'm kind of shutting the door on grace, hmm. and then I'm back to you know all that neurotic effort hmm. um, and. I think most days I'm okay with that. But even, even, I mean, as a young missionary, you know, just beating myself up, never enough. 
as a senior missionary, still on occasion, feeling like, oh, I'm just not doing enough. Mm. There's so much more we could be right. doing. And that's that, that, to me, that's just the life, for me personally, that's right. the lifelong struggle to just, it, it's, it's enough. Yeah. So is that kind of, that, that same bush bunch be your best, is that kind of something that you're carrying into your own experience now as a missionary, a, a senior missionary? It's still the same thing, get up, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm going to oh, yeah. be my best today. I'm going to strive to be my best today anyways, yeah. 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 Huh. <laughs> Very cool. And, and, you know, my wife continues to try to remind me that, you know, the it's different for senior missionaries. Mm -hmm. Since you keep trying to be like all these young elders and sisters. <laughs> and, and there's some truth to that. Well, very good. What uh, so, so tell me, in most marriages and most relationships, there's like a yin and a yang, you know, yeah. there's... So what strengths does your wife have that makes up for some of your weaknesses and vice versa? I think the... Probably the single most important gift that Kathy has is, whereas I rely on my own intellect and, and my own abilities, uh, particularly when it comes to you know dealing with the family, right from the get-go, um, she knew that there was a much wiser source than just a PhD in mm. psychology or family studies. And so one of my favorite stories is when our oldest daughter who was an exceptional student, brought a note home from school that was not stellar. My immediate thought was we got to get out a behavioral change plan and mm. stickers and a chart <laughs> and get, you know, kind of nip this in the bud. And Kathy's first impulse was to go to her bedroom and kneel down. And then she came back in. And when that daughter came home from school, she just simply said, how do you feel about school? Mm. And this daughter who had excelled and loved school just cried and, mm. just, and talked about what had happened at school the day before where she had been punished with all the class for something someone else had done. Mm. And she was really upset about it because they mm. had to put their noses against this hot brick wall mm. and not get a play at recess. And that was so unfair. And when we found out it really wasn't fair... And that the way the, the, the discipline had been handled was really pretty inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Then her defiance made perfect sense. Right. And so that, you know, but the fact that she took time to ask the right question, listen, then the behavior problem went away. Because mm. she felt hurt and, and, and validated. Yeah. And then we were able to go to the teacher and just talk about, hey, you know, what do you, what do you think is a way uh, when somebody else is misbehaving? Is there a way to address that without punishing the whole class? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, anyway, yeah. so it worked out really well. But but throughout our parenting experience, Kathy has often uh, sought kind of spiritual direction to solve a specific issue. Hmm. And I've gone back to my textbooks, you know, and <laughs> here's what we need to do. The PhD, huh? Which is not a bad thing. It's no. just not as effective. And so I think that's the strength that she brings, uh -huh. is just a complete uh, trust in a, this uh, resource that we have as a couple and as a family. And from the start, and the reason that I was attracted to her in the first place was she bore testimony that her goal in life was to see the face of the Savior. I've never heard anyone. I haven't before or since. 
uh, publicly say that this is my life's goal. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, well, I need to date this woman. But she's this, you know, she's got this spiritual uh, foundation that's rich. And, uh, and then her, her fierce loyalty to her children and her family that she will not let nothing, including our mission, hmm. get in the way hmm. of her role as a mother and grandmother. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm off teaching or singing with the Tabernacle Choir or mm -hmm. all these right, right. other things, which are really fun. It's more about, you know, and she... she it's more uh, about you? Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, there have been times when I've been selfish. Yeah. And uh, that's really kind of her gift is mm. to be completely selfless mm. in, with regard to our family. So she's a really okay. good... Balance. So what are some of your strengths in that relationship? I just stay, stay completely focused. Hmm. I mean, when I... You have I, a goal and you hit oh, it? Yeah. Like, I made it goal when our oldest daughter was born that I would have PPIs with our kids every facet. And for how many years? I'm trying to think. 30-some years. Every facet, they have PPIs with the kids. Hmm. So you'd sit down and talk to him, and how, how's it yeah. going, and yeah. let's have a conversation. Yeah. That was probably the single most important thing I did as a dad. Um, so I, I think that, you know, uh, I am a really driven, determined individual, mm. and I really stay focused. So that's yeah. a good thing, but it's, it's also yeah. a weakness. Sometimes you get the blinders on when you do that. So what's a goal that you're working towards right now? I think it was with regard to, you know, uh, a mission experience, I... When we came out, my goal was to help a family get to the temple every month. Hmm. And we're at about five in the first nine months. Hmm. So to, that's still the goal, Yeah. get families to the temple. So I feel really focused on that. I'd also like to double the size of our Aaronic priesthood. So I have some really specific goals. When we get home, then, I don't know, it'll be the first time in life that I haven't had a really clear direction. So that'll be, a, that'll be an adventure. Yeah, so so my my dad is so he retired fairly young, mid fifties I think is he he was about mid fifties when he retired from work, and he and my mom immediately went on a mission, and then they've served two or three more missions since then, and right now my dad's kind of just kind of figuring out what do I need to do at this point and. And it's it's somewhat painful to watch because he's a fairly driven guy, you know. And right now there's not a defined thing that he's driven towards. So sometimes yeah. it's a little bit painful to watch that. Yeah. And I think it's a really essential stage to go through. So uh, how will, you know, whether I'll avoid that by just, you know, just jumping into the next mission. Or, right. Or whether we'll have the courage to just step back and trust, you know, a power greater than us to give us that direction. So I just have a couple more questions. We'll, we'll see where it goes. So how do you view opponents in your life? Whether it's people who have come against you, whether it's, you know, maybe you're a, a big fan of one team and the opponent, opposing team, but how do you view that, that relationship between you and an opponent? Growing up, um, pretty unhealthy. I was so competitive growing up 
that I got thrown out of sporting events. Mm. Um, so I hated opponents, and I wanted to crush them. Mm. Um, and that's not at all healthy. Right. Um, because then sometimes, you know, you, you hate yourself if you lose. Mm. And I, I couldn't abide losing. I mean, mm. like if the Green Bay Packers lost, mm. I would go into a rage. Mm. Fortunately, they didn't lose very often <laughs> <laughs> under Vince Lombardi. But I would choose winning teams. So I was a New York Yankees fan. I was oh, a Green Bay Packers fan. Yeah. And, and I won't hold that Yankees thing against you. <laughs> but I chose, you know, winning teams <laughs> as a way to, I think, protect myself because mm. I, I, I didn't abide losing very well. Interesting. And even now, I'm probably too competitive. You know, pickleball or something silly. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, I've gotten to the place with golf that it's just all about, um, again, being more curious and mm. fascinated by all the variables that influence the flight of the ball. So I don't swear and throw my gloves like I did. I quit golf for about 20 years because yeah. I couldn't play without getting upset. Huh. And now I really enjoy it. But I, I'm sacrificing it for 18 months because I don't want it to be a distraction. So I'm learning to see you know, opposition as essential. Mm. Uh, so with my grandsons, when we play badminton, instead of trying to score a point, we try to set a world record for the longest rally. Uh-huh. And the record we have so far is 208. Wow. Yeah, I, we got in a rhythm, just got in the zone, and it was just mindless. We just huh. boom, 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 boom. It was really a cool experience. You're still uh, you're still feeding those competitive juices, right. but you're working yeah, together more, more instead of against more, each yeah, other. Seeing your opponent as 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 part of the experience. Right. And so most of the time I can do that, whether it's tennis or mm-hmm. racquetball or pickleball, just see it as and get really excited when they make a great shot. Hmm. Uh, the only time I get upset is if I'm missing. You know, if I'm if I'm not playing well, then right. I get upset. I, I don't get upset at them. I just get frustrated with myself. What is a time when you lost that maybe you got really upset about at the time, but you look back and you said, I really learned a lesson from that loss, whether it's in sports or anything in life? Um, The one that just popped into my mind was in ninth grade. Uh, I worked really hard to uh, run for student body president for the junior high mm-hmm. and I was a much better candidate the other kid just did it he didn't even care he didn't he didn't campaign hmm. I had posters stickers I had a great speech and everything when we got up in front of the student body um, they had Robert go first and he said if you want to vote for me you will and he sat down and everyone cheered laughed I had this awesome speech uh-huh. and I panicked hmm. so I went up to the mic tried to be cool and said ditto and sat down, dead silence. Uh. And I realized I had completely abandoned myself, mm. and I lost the election. Yeah. It was the most painful social, well, second most painful social experience mm. up to that point. But in hindsight, I realized, I, I think if I'd given my speech, I may or may not, Robert was very popular, and mm-hmm. I wasn't so much, but I know I would have been a much better student body officer, because mm. I cared, and he didn't. And I think if I had given my speech, which was really well written, um, who knows? I think it would have been a different outcome. And so 
I learned that important lesson of being true to yourself, that the goal is not to beat the other person. The goal is to be yourself. And if you're the best person for the job, mm -hmm. then, uh, and if it's, if it's a, you know, if you trust that there's a power bigger than yourself, if it's, you know, what you need to be doing to accomplish your life purpose, then it'll work out. But mm. I just completely abandoned myself in that moment. And, and yeah. that was... And for years, I had a hard time forgiving myself. For, yeah. You know. And that that's a tough one because, I mean, I don't know if the, the bush branch be your best was in your, even in your thoughts at that point, at least your conscious thoughts in ninth grade. But that is one of those things that's totally contrary to what yeah. that is, is I'm going to step back and not be my best self. I'm just going to try and be like this guy yeah. who I thought was cool and everybody yeah. else thought was Seemed cool. Seemed to think was cool. And yeah. Yeah, that was a disaster. I've, I've learned in my own life that trying to look cool to others has been um, my biggest downfall yeah. in lots and lots and never, lots of places. Never works. <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. I really, I think that's something that... Uh, well, it's causing a lot of reflection in my mind, so I think others will, will find that also as a as a good thing to think about and ponder on. Where have I betrayed myself, you know, and how not to do that again in the future. That's really cool. All right, so what do you want your posterity to remember you by? Let's look down the road, you know, 80 years from now. You're, you're gone, and your great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids are sitting around talking and they're talking about their grandpa Dave Bush what do you want your legacy to be I, I hope that um, you know first and foremost they will believe in kind of their um, patriarchal blessing hmm. I, I hope that they'll know that they have a heavenly father that knows them intimately is so well aware of their gifts and uh, wants them to just express those. And I hope that they'll see in my life that even though it took me a while to figure that out, that I eventually got to the place where I distrusted that, hmm. that I had something to offer. I write a song for each of our grandkids. Hmm. And so I have 25 songs now. Wow. And they're unique to the circumstance of their birth and their name and so forth. And the message is usually pretty consistently that you are this amazing child. Mm. Do you have any idea how what you mean to me and the, and what you mean, you know, to your heavenly Father? And so that's my gift. Mm. You know, is kind of this musical gift. The the lyrics, the melody, it just comes to me, and it wow. and it fits. So the ones born in Asia have kind of an Asian theme. The ones mm. born in Hawaii have kind of a Hawaiian theme. Mm. The ones born in Southern Utah have a kind of a Western theme, and, <laughs> uh -huh. and and the one born in Philadelphia has kind of a patriotic theme, and mm. it it's just um, so I, you know I want them to be able to play mm. those songs, whether the recording of the songs or on the piano or whatever, and and I want them to remember that by example you know I discovered at least one of my gifts mm. and shared it with them and then I want them to take that experience and discover you know not to try to duplicate it but just try mm -hmm. to figure it well then what's my is it writing or is yeah. it music yeah. or is it um, serving or you know 
what is that endowment that I've been given? Yeah. And how can I share that with my posterity, mm. with my kids and grandkids and great-grandkids in the world? And uh, if they can take that from my relationship with them, even the ones yet born, or mm. the unborn, you know, then uh, that would be neat. So what is the message of the song that was written for you the day you were born? I have one song um, that uh, was probably the first song that came to me um, before I even started writing songs for the grandkids. Mm -hmm. And it was based on the story of Simeon and Anna and the baby Jesus mm. in the temple. Um, and the name of the song comes from Luke, you know, from the account that mine eyes have seen my salvation. Mm. And I think it's a rather stunning piece, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think it's one of my best pieces of work. Mm. But I think, you know, if, if, if I could adopt a theme song for my birth or my life, that would be it. Mine eyes have seen my salvation. Hmm. And uh, and the the at the end the refrain is come to the temple, hmm. which you know Simeon yeah. and Anna did. That's where they were, and that's where they they found the Savior. And so it's just the, kind of this repeating refrain at the end: come to the temple, come hmm. to the temple. Very cool. So if that if that could be my song, that would be neat. Yeah. Very cool. Any other words of wisdom that you have that you want to leave before before we close this up? I think throughout, especially the last, I don't know, decade, um, I've tried to find a way to communicate to my children and grandchildren a lot of these thoughts, you know, mm -hmm. writing my dad's, I, I, the name of dad's life history was I am my father's son. Mm. And so it's as much about my story as it is about him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've, you know, put together 7,000 photos of our family from the time we first got married until we switched to digital. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. scanned all those pictures and put them together for the uh. kids. And so it's like I'm, I've kind of had this, I don't know if it's because of the cancer, probably the cancer. Mm. The last since the cancer, I've tried to find a way to communicate these thoughts and feelings, mm. so that you know maybe they'll have an impact. And then I've realized, especially lately, because I I wrote to the kids every Sunday mm. from the time our oldest daughter left home mm. until our youngest daughter left home, and one of our daughters has kept every one of those letters mm. uh, over the last however many couple wow. of decades, but. Until it got to the point that my son said, Dad, why are you wasting all this money on postage? Because, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. eight stamps a week. Right. Um, so he said, why don't you just email it to us? <laughs> so the last couple of years I've been emailing the letters right. instead of snail mailing the letters all over the world. Right. And uh, But now I don't even think they even read the email. Uh -huh. Hmm. And so I'm kind of in this dilemma right. of, hmm, do I just stop writing? Hmm. Like, that doesn't feel right. Right. So I'll probably just keep writing until I die. But 
right? But it's, it's, even if it's know, in a journal type setting instead of yeah. a, you know sending it out type setting. Anyway, the yeah. kind of existential question I have is: Does anybody care hmm. about what I think? Hmm. And uh, and and it's not a, a depressing thought or even a anxious thought. It's hmm. just a again a kind of a curious right. thought. Um, and so I thought, well, it's kind of arrogant to believe that somebody will want to read all these mm -hmm. words. Right. And so I've, I'm trying to figure out how much to write mm. and in what context. And uh, so I, I, don't, I don't have an answer to that. No. Well, that's really it's just a, a, interesting. My, my latest question, what point is your writing annoying? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. In my, I mean, you and I have, in the grand scheme of things, have very little interaction. Right. I mean, we know almost next to nothing about each other. Right. I know a lot more about you now after this conversation. Right. But uh, when I asked you the question about the theme of your song that was written the day you were born, from my tiny glimpse of your life before that, um, I... I I want to share this with you because it came to me. I think that a theme to a song or possibly, you know, the part of your life that I am aware of is um, that you are an answer to people's prayers who are invisible. To invisible people's prayers. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by invisible is it's people who in their own eyes or maybe in the eyes of many people that are around them, don't think they leave a wake behind them. Mm. They're just kind of going through life. And I've seen that you have put your arm around some of these people and helped them see that there is a wake that they're leaving, that their life has meaning. And that is something that I have observed. And I just wanted to share that with you because yes. I think it's, for me, it's a great example for me. So, that. all right. Well, Dave, I've really enjoyed this. I hope it's been meaningful for you. It's been really positive experience well there you have it it's not about you it's not about me uh, many good lessons out of that um, I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Dave Bush now before signing off I'm going to include an in their own words read by Dave Bush about his two great grandfathers who both emigrated from Wales in well a long time ago and settled in the southeast Idaho region of the United States. Here you go, in their own words. I was blessed to sing with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir from 2000 until 2012. And I often wondered, where did this musical talent come from? I was fortunate to have seven years of piano instruction from 8 to 15, and I always sang with the Ward Choir. But I never had any formal vocal training and felt it was a miracle that I survived the audition process to get into the Tabernacle Choir. However, upon reading both my great-grandfather Bowen's history as well as my great-grandfather Bush's history, I realized that both Welshmen had considerable music talent. David John Bowen, my great-grandfather, writes of his father's talent, quote, 
He was prominently identified, particularly with the musical life of the community. He was a choir leader for the Tooele Award for many years, and with his son John as organist, was a member and for many years leaders of the first brass band. Several of his grandchildren tell stories of his musical ability and accomplishments. When music could not be procured, he himself composed what he needed to fit the occasion and then made enough copies to supply the group. An almost identical story was written by my great-grandmother, Annie Shackleton, of her husband, she writes, there was no ward choir in Samaria, and though there were many excellent voices, there was scarcely anybody that had the least knowledge of music, and there was no leader. After a while, someone found out that my husband was well qualified for such a post. They requested him to organize a choir, and he certainly had a job on his hands. There were no books and no money to get any. I don't think there was a sheet of music in town, except what we took with us. We used to spend hours in copying music. We furnished our own material, and I helped my husband all I could in this work. In a few months, we had a passable choir. And so it was clear to me that uh, on the Bowen side of my family, there was considerable musical talent. I was surprised later when reading about my great-grandfather, uh, Robert Thomas uh, Bush, that he also, a Welshman, had a great love of music. And when he was a young man on um, a boat, Golconda, so he was a passenger on the Golconda, which brought a number of Welsh saints to Zion, and he says of their Atlantic voyage, there were some elders of us who were returning from the mission and a few uh, bachelors on board. It was very cold when we left Liverpool, and in a few days we got a warmer climate and comfortable on deck. It was a sight to see the ships sailing on the sea. We had a brass band on board, and I was one of them, all Welsh. And there was a choir on board, and I was one of them, and also a string band. They played for dances, and we had dancing on the sea. So I thought that was quite uh, remarkable that uh, Robert Thomas Bush and David John Bowen, both my great-grandfathers, had considerable music talent that must have been run deep in their Welsh roots and uh, passed down to my genetic makeup so that I was blessed with the opportunity to love music and enjoy singing. And that's in their own words. Mm -hmm. 